This is episode 68 with Claire Pearson. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Before we get into this episode, just a little warning to those parents who listen with their children. There's some language in this chat about sex trafficking and some of the stats around this horrendous trade. We talk about it quite a bit and I actually think it's a great education for kids to expose them to these realities that actually happen in our world and Claire and I also discuss that in this episode but I just wanted to give you the heads up first. So Claire Pearson is the CEO of a foundation called Project Futures, which is giving hope by transforming the lives of women and children affected by human trafficking, slavery and sexual exploitation in Australia and Cambodia. They also connect people to these issues by creating meaningful experiences that raise funds, educate and empower our generation to take action. Claire is also a psychologist, a mother and an extremely driven woman to create change and impact. I was so energized to keep grinding away with the small things I'm doing in my life and in my company and the small impact I'm making after this chat with Claire. If you're looking for some motivation and inspiration to find your why and to leave a legacy, then this should surely fuel that fire. In this episode, you will learn the reality of the multi-billion dollar sex trafficking and human slavery industry around the globe, why women don't escape their slavery straight away, even when given the chance, how we as humans can help not only Project Futures and the sex trafficking industry, but also other non-for-profits and even ourselves by diving into our curiosities and our personal skills. I also talked to Claire about human behavior in general society and she expresses her view on balance, quote unquote balance, uh, also what most of us humans are missing in our lives and she also exposes her biggest failures. Before we hear from this legend, I want to take a minute to read an iTunes review and this one is from Buffhead14, Buffhead and he's well, I shouldn't say he, he or she, Buffhead has titled it Pure Gold. I've been listening to your life of impact since the first episode and I'm blown away by the content of every show. The combination of Brett's charismatic and enthusiastic delivery of each episode along with the vast array of inspiring and influential people makes each episode pure gold and loaded with knowledge bombs. Every episode will leave you pumped and ready to go out and start leading your impactful journey. Keep up the awesome work, mate. Well, thanks, Buffhead. Greatly appreciated. You've made my day, Buffhead. I love hearing from you listeners and I'm super grateful for all of you who take the time to write a review on iTunes. 
Those reviews help keep this podcast alive because of the back-end algorithms required for iTunes to help spread the awesomeness of the podcast. So thanks again. Now let's hear from Claire Pearson. Project Futures is a small but I have to say a mighty charity. We're based in Sydney but we work nationally and ultimately we're in the business of restoring hope and helping people transform their lives after they've fallen victim to sex trafficking. We only focus on Australia and Cambodia. We'd like to do more but I think we have to be realistic with the resources that we have and so that's where our heart lies at this point. So you mentioned their sex trafficking and you uh, you do a lot around the modern slavery as well. What what is modern slavery and what is human trafficking? So I think a lot of people, they have a pretty clear idea about what slavery did look like. They, they think of people in sort of the striped jumpsuits being forced to work out in the fields. Maybe they're being beaten. Maybe they're, you know, chained, those sort of things. But modern slavery is still about people being forced to engage in acts, whether that be of a sexual, physical, emotional domain against their will. But they may not be chained anymore. But what we're seeing is people are forced through coercion, through threats, and a lot of the time drug addiction. So they're invisible chains. And one of the things I suppose that's really resonated with me over the time that I've been working with Project Futures is that these people are hidden in plain sight. They're walking the streets like you or, you or I, particularly in countries like Cambodia, because they just look like anyone else. And we don't see the invisible chains. We don't see the scars that they've endured. Sex trafficking is one of those particular areas that falls under modern slavery. And I would suggest that about 80% of all victims of any form of slavery have some sort of sexual exploitation involved with them. But it's really talking about mainly women and children, including boys, being forced to engage in sexual encounters, servicing up to 40 men a night against their will. Some of the stats are mind-blowing on your website. Almost 46 million people are enslaved in our world today. Two million children will be sold in the next year. And you've also stated that it's the fastest growing crime industry. And I saw on the video that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah, that's right. They're really scary numbers. I mean, those figures are from last year, but they haven't been released as yet for 2017. So in 2014, we're talking about just over 30 million, 30.4 million people enslaved. In 2016, they released that it was 45, almost 46 million people working in slave-like conditions around the world. So they're rapidly growing. And the reason for this is that traffickers are incredibly adaptive. They see a gap in the market and they're able to jump on it. And sadly, life is cheap. So they're able to force people to do things that, that create a lot of money and collateral for them, but at, at the cost of a human life. What do you mean by seeing a gap in the market and jumping on it? So we, I mean, the sex industry is, is fairly obvious. We talk about sex tourism. People, we know people travel to other countries to engage in, in sex that's either with minors, particularly children, like young children, at a very cheap cost where the penalties and the exposure to any sort of law enforcement are slim to none. And that it's cheap. But what we're also seeing is that this is fast adapting. So we're not just talking about now forcing children to engage in sexual acts. We're talking about exploiting them through the internet, for instance. So people all around the world can access children being abused at a very low cost from the comfort of their homes, where again, there's very little exposure and the likelihood of being prosecuted is very low. 
we're seeing women um, forced to be a surrogate for other women. So things that we don't think about, things that play upon people's sensitivities, their their desperation, is where traffickers come in and, and try to fill that gap and make themselves a lot of money. And the impact isn't just in foreign places like Cambodia. You mentioned Australia and that's what really blew me away is that this is happening in Australia, how how much is Australia actually impacted by these trades? Yeah, it is. It's really scary. So, in not one country in the world is human trafficking legal, and yet it exists in every single country in the world, including Australia. So, last year it was estimated that four thousand three hundred people had been trafficked into Australia. I suppose it's it's important to identify that generally Australia is a destination country, which means they're being trafficked in. We there are some very small percentage of people that are being trafficked out, but generally they're being trafficked into the country, and we're seeing them being forced into brothels, so the sex industry, nail bars, so you know forced labour into farms, various bis- fisheries, lots of different businesses and business models where people are being exploited. Unbelievable, and. On Project Futures, it was Stephanie Lorenzo who created this amazing organisation. And was it after she was exposed to some of these realities? Yeah, so Steph's an incredible person. We still work really closely with her With as being the founder. She'll always have a special place in Project Futures and her connection is obviously very deep. But basically at 22, she was a uni student. She wanted to go on a trip. She found herself in Cambodia on holiday. While she was there, she picked up the book of Somali Mam, who is the survivor of sex trafficking and now a human rights activist. And she runs a number of safe houses and outreach programs to support other women and children finding themselves in sex trafficking circumstances. When Steph came back, I suppose she just felt compelled. She just felt someone has to do something. Someone has to raise the flag. Someone has to contribute. And being a young, enthusiastic, motivated person, she decided she would do something. And I suppose this is the difference between most of us and founders is that a founder reacts to passion. A founder just is motivated to do. They don't talk, they do, which is an incredible skill and an incredible mo- internal motivation to have. But yes, she just she started the, the charity soon after and on International Women's Day in 2009, they presented Somali with their first check of $80,000 and it's just continued from there. So next year will be our 10th anniversary um, and Steph stepped down as founder or as a CEO and working founder in 2017. Claire, before we dive deeper into this amazing organisation and your interesting life, I want to say, Claire Pearson, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds very exciting. Sounds like you're talking about someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we met at one of your events, the Project Future events, which was held here on the Gold Coast at Elevation, which is the gym that I coach at in Burley Heads. And you were joined by two lovely ladies who bravely told their story. And I was fully captivated and blown away. Mm, yeah, that's, it's incredible actually to hear you say that because often we don't really know our impact when we present. So that particular event was particularly impactful because we had Somali herself come out and one of her survivors who now works with her, Sinavan, and we toured the country for three weeks just really re-engaging people that had known about us but maybe haven't touched base in a long time and educating as many people as we can about the issue of sex trafficking in Australia and Cambodia. And I suppose 
letting people know that they can do something, whether that's big or small, but breaking that down so the issue doesn't feel as overwhelming. Because often we don't act because we feel overwhelmed and we feel like, how possibly could I, one small person here in Australia, on the Gold Coast, wherever you might be, make a difference? And it was the thing that blew me away and captivated me was the openness from Somali and Sinovan. They spoke about their story of their their time as slaves themselves and they were really quite open to it and then exposing their vulnerabilities but also their story of how they had turned life around and what it meant to them to give back to that. Yeah, as you can imagine, it's really generous for anyone who suffered any sort of trauma to share their story because it's a very private thing. And often when we share a story that has been traumatic, we actually relive it vicariously. So over that three weeks, because we were doing so many presentations, we actually saw both Somali and Sinna have a, a lot of symptoms that are linked with trauma reemerge. So things like night terrors, affected appetite, feeling very fatigued, a little bit disorientated at times. So it, it was really interesting. We had to put a lot of care in place to make sure that they were doing okay. So sometimes we actually had to cancel events or talks to make sure that they personally were able to process what they were reliving and resharing. But about 8% of victims of sex trafficking will want to publicly advocate and publicly share their story in order to create change. So it's a very small number of people. I suppose Sina in particular is is very interesting because she was actually rescued by Somali and she received approximately 10 years of support and now she's gone on to be an employee of the organisation that Somali runs, that being AFISIP and our impact partner, and she runs outreach. So she's still going out into the community to support women and girls that are currently owned by someone and are being forced to engage in sex and they're owned by their trafficker still. So she's talking to them about self-care. We take doctors out, issue resources and ultimately building that relationship, educating these women about when you're ready, we're here to support you when you want to escape this situation. And that's interesting you put it like that to say when you're ready. So what what makes a woman be ready and because I guess it's easy for us to sit here uh, in our beautiful lives and think well why wouldn't they just jump at that opportunity and run away from everything it is really hard to understand when I went over there myself I went out with Sinner on outreach and and again these women are hidden in plain sight they just look they all gathered around we took a doctor out with us and we we're doing some basic sort of medical intervention and handing out condoms and soap and various things And I thought to myself, why don't these people just run? Just run. You can go anywhere. But the reality is, where are these people running? Where are these women going? They have no education. Most of the men have been trafficked. They're either second or third uh, generation of trafficked women, or they were sold by their families at a young age. They have no education. They have no connections. They're shunned by community. Most of them are drug affected. Most of them have multiple children, which means that they need food. They need some basic shelter in order to survive. So leaving is actually really scary because in Cambodia in particular, there's no service and there's no government intervention. There's no voice for these women, which is why the work that we do and what we support Somalis do is so incredibly important. So they have to be ready to do that. Also too, there's obviously a lot of violence. You know, you take a a woman away from a trafficker, she is a commodity to him, she is producing money for him, so he is likely to come after the service, he is likely to beat her quite profoundly if he gets hold of her, so it is a big decision, particularly if you have children. Yeah, it goes quite deep actually and 
to understand and I saw it on the website and to hear you ladies talk about it when I saw you do your chat at Elevation around the impact of education and allowing these ladies to have the opportunity to even have their own companies and their own businesses to help them with their mm. their path forward. I think, I mean, in Australia, we hear it so often, right? My dad, a teacher, my whole childhood, he said, education is so important. You're so lucky to have an education and you really just don't think about it because it's just part of our basic human rights in our, here in Australia. But in Cambodia, it's not a national require, requirement. It's not placed as a priority for families. And we're seeing a lot of children and therefore adults that can't read, can't write. So if you don't have those basic skills and you need a job or you can't feed your family, you have to engage in other opportunities that hopefully will produce some sort of lifestyle, some sort of funding in order to survive. So education is literally the number one cycle breaker in terms of, well, most issues in society, to be honest, but particularly with regards to sex trafficking. Now, you mentioned before that people, especially from Australia, we might think that the problem is so big, what can we actually do? And part of the tour that you were doing when I met you was actually to uh, educate people on how they can actually make a difference. Uh, We had Somali there speaking, as you said, and she's got that amazing book, The Road to Lost Innocence, which I'm going to link into these show notes for everyone. But also you were there promoting uh, the cycle tour that you guys are doing in October to raise funds and awareness. Yes, absolutely. So I think that sense of, you know, when we talk about big numbers, we're talking about nearly 46 million people being trafficked in 2016-17. So We do feel overwhelmed. And I myself, when I went to Cambodia for the first time and I met those women on outreach, I actually left thinking, am I in the wrong job? How how am I going to end sex trafficking? How am I going to do that? One person in Australia with a very, very, very small team. But the reality is, and I know it sounds cliche, but if you actually make a difference to one person, you are actually creating change. You're creating a movement because when you educate, support, allow one girl to repair and recover and go on to a life where she's financially independent, she is more likely to educate her child. Her child is less at risk of trafficking if her mother has some sort of financial income where she's able to sustain herself. So, It has a generational impact that we need to be aware of, which is why we do the cycles. So each year we do two cycles. We do one for schools in July, school holidays, and we do a cycle in October. These cycles are 400 kilometres. We ride across the country each day unpacking the issue. We meet with survivors. We see them in the micro businesses we've set up. We see them in employment after they've done the training that we've funded. We get to meet the girls that have been rescued and are currently living in the safe house, receiving unbelievable medical care, education, just opportunities to reach their full potential but also too to go out into the community and meet the women that are still owned and see how they live and to hear directly from them about the services we provide them. Each person on the cycle raises a small amount of money, being $3,000, and that money is directly given to the service to provide care and intervention and resource to make sure we can support and try and create a movement of change. That's brilliant. And are these, these cycles open to anyone? They are. So the school cycle is for parents and and their teenage children. So it's a little bit, it just, we use different language and we make sure that 
that it's a, appropriate for young people. But I think it's really important for young people to engage in issues you know we're we're constantly exposed to things in the media and it's a one-off interaction young people need to be aware they need to have the support to unpack and to learn about these things in a supportive environment with their parent with a service that can actually explain things so that they understand how the world works and then later in the year in October, we have an open cycle, which is for anyone over 18. And again, it's just because we're seeing different things and making sure that people have the support to process that and to feel part of a positive and hopeful change as opposed to feeling overwhelmed by the issue. And for anyone wanting to check out more information on that, that's obviously on the Project Futures website. Absolutely. So you just jump on our website, projectfutures.com, and have a look at our adventures across Cambodia and you'll see all the details there. Brilliant. And I'll link all that up in the show notes so everyone can find that in the show notes to this episode. So Claire, I'm intrigued to find out a little bit more about you as a person. We've talked a lot about Project Futures and you're the CEO of this amazing organisation. You have been for around 12 months now. How did this role come about for you? So by trade, I'm a psychologist. I never actually, once I finished, which my father was very thankful for, 12 years of study and still going, <laughs> I decided I was I didn't want to be put in a box. I felt like I have more to give. And so I went straight into community work and that's where I've sat. So my passion is women and children. And I've worked in various different industries around education, disability, early intervention, really just connecting with people. That's that's my skill. That's my passion. So uh, about 12 months ago, I decided I'd been in my role for five years as a CEO of a disability service. And I often think it's important to recognize when you're becoming a little bit too comfortable in a role and to make sure that there's always opportunity for growth, for organizations to have fresh eyes and to know when it's time to move on, when you've given everything you can. So I decided I'd start to look around. And when I saw this role, I just knew it was for me. I just thought, what an incredible opportunity to be able to share my skills, not only with women and young people here in Australia, but also in Cambodia where they don't have access to my type of skills necessarily, to be able to connect with people internationally and to learn about such a hidden issue and one that I felt incredibly passionate about as soon as I started to learn more. And really, I didn't know much about it either. But as I read and as I learned about these stories, I thought, this is for me. I can have an impact here. And that's what I want to do. I want to live my life every day feeling passionate, inspired, connected. And so I look for opportunity to do that through whether that be my paid employment or volunteer roles, but just utilizing the time that I have in a meaningful way. Where does that spark come from? Because it's it's not something that we find in everybody, but it's when we do find it in someone like yourself, it can have so much magic and impact to it. Where does that spark come from for you to really want to make a difference in the world, in other people's lives, in your own life? Uh, I think for me, it's just something that's been engendered in me for, for my whole upbringing. My, my parents both work in community spaces. You know, I was encouraged to do a lot of charitable work as a young person. I remember running my first fundraising campaign on my own uh, at the age of eight. And I I wanted to see what I could do. I wanted to see what I could do when I put my mind to it. I wanted to see who I could connect with, how I impacted someone that maybe didn't have everything that I had. So I, I also grew up in an 
in a small town on the mid-north coast, which had a very high Aboriginal community there. And so I had a lot of learnings there about privilege, about sharing resources without draining your own, but how to connect with people and have a deeper appreciation for difference. And so those sort of experiences as a young child, I think really it stays with you, it motivates you, it changes you. And so I've done a lot of work as an adult in Aboriginal communities as well. And because I don't look like the typical person that would be interested in that, I'm a bit of a no guts, no glory sort of girl, but I find it takes me a little bit longer to win their trust. But when I get in there, they realize that I'm genuine about what I'm doing. I think if you're going to put some time into it, be really precise about how you use your time. Be really committed. Otherwise, people pick up on that. And you're, when you're dealing with vulnerable communities, it's it's wasting everyone's time and resource. So just be particular. Don't spread yourself too thin, but be really clear about how you're going to support and what it looks like. So you're a mother. You've got a two-year-old son. And mm. how does your view uh, maybe differ or how do you see that you will expose your child to the world in a similar sort of way through charity, through communities? Yeah, good question. So being a psychologist, you have a lot of training about desensitizing yourself and keeping boundaries, which are... I did extremely well before having a baby. And I suppose when you come face to face with the issue of human trafficking, particularly another mother, a lot of those boundaries are crossed when you have a baby, which I didn't actually expect. So my, I've had to redefine what it looks like to have boundaries. I've had to redefine what it looks like to connect with people after having a child. So that was one of the unexpected learnings that came with being a mother. But I suppose I think it's really important to expose young people, particularly privileged white young people, to issues, giving them age-appropriate bite-sized chunks and supporting that message and answering questions as honestly as possible throughout their childhood. So I personally wouldn't wait till someone is 15, 16, 17 and then dump all this negative information on their behalf if they haven't been exposed to things. So I think it's about that drip feed of information you know, entertain children's curiosity. It's important. They're our next generation. They're our next leaders. Who knows who you're talking to? Who knows who you're raising? And I just, I think that's really important. And they're things I talk about. I'm away from home a lot. So I focus on quality time. But when I'm with him, I talk to him about where I've been, what I've been doing. And obviously that's fairly basic at two, but I think it's important that it's just part of our conversation and our daily life. That's brilliant. I love that. And I love how you said to sort of entertain their curiosities. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're curious about stuff, right? Like young people Google things now in particular. They can find out anything they want, but that information isn't necessarily delivered in a way that's appropriate for that age. So it's really important that if if a child asks a question, particularly if it's a difficult question or particularly, particularly if it's about a difficult issue, that we give them some sort of information that nurtures that curiosity, but also keeps them safe and gives it in in chunks that are digestible and meaningful for them at their point in their life. And you mentioned you're a psychologist and I've had about five different psychologists on the podcast now, which I love because I'm fully intrigued about human behavior. (laughs) But I want to ask, you sort of touched on it before, but how do you view the world from your lens? And I'm talking about on a daily basis that you know, not necessarily on a global view of all the unfortunate harsh realities that exist, like what we've spoken about today that you guys help make an impact with. I'm talking about when you look at people and you think about life balance, 
purpose or our why when you think about philosophy. So for those of us who are blessed enough to have the choice of career, the choice of where to live, the choice to visit family and take vacations, I guess what I'm asking is how what do you see in society in terms of what we're kind of missing when you look at it from your psychologist lens? Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of things. We get really caught up in the day-to-day. We forget to live in the moment. And I think that that has a real drain on on one's soul. And, you know, it's just life is so fast-paced. There's so many people pulling you from so many directions. There's so much expectation. So I think it's really people need to be really clear on who they are. They need to know their worth. They need to know what's important and they need to prioritize that. And that sounds easy, but that's incredibly hard. But I think when you understand what your priorities are, you will find your purpose. And when we follow that purpose, it leads us into opportunities in unexpected ways. You know, I I find a lot of women in particular have this sort of romantic but unrealistic dream about what love looks like or what the, the perfect family looks like or what the perfect life looks like. But in reality, life is complex and it's messy, but it's also fabulous. And we have to we have to be prepared to accept it looking a little bit different to what it looks like in the movies because that's just not reality, sadly. But doesn't mean that it's not messy and, and interesting and intriguing and all of those things. We just have to bundle them up and appreciate them for what they are. So I think getting that balance and finding those priorities, we just forget to do that. We get stuck in the daily grind and we get pulled a little bit this way and pulled a little bit that way. And before we know it, we're found in a space that we really didn't want to be in and we don't know how we got there. From your time in the nonprofit sector, do you believe or have you experienced that when people can contribute and connect to a cause that's bigger than themselves and really begin and to feel themselves making an impact, that their perception of their lives changes then and that they do start to know their worth and their priorities and uh, their attitude towards stress and worry changes? I think definitely feeling connected to something and feeling like you're creating, you're part of a movement, that you're creating a world that is somewhere you anticipate wanting to live or your children to grow up in. I think that having some purpose and a connection with purpose is a really important aspect to adult life in particular. But not everybody will be able to work in the not-for-profit sector. You know, they don't. it doesn't pay as much. It's not as much opportunity potentially. Um, maybe people don't know what they're really passionate about. So I, th- I think that's two-pronged. I think it's about spending time understanding what your passions are. Read, listen to people connect, experience things, push your boundaries because you will find something that deeply moves you. And so how you support that looks different for everyone. And if you can't work in that space, then think about how you might use your skills, your talents, your time to help that movement. So I often, often people say to me, I have no money to give you, but I really want to support. It's like, okay, I ask them, well, what is your talent? What, what are you passionate about? What do you do well? Because often there's a synergy there in not-for-profit. We often you know, really finance poor. And so it's hard to pay for marketing or finance skills or strategic planning or just volunteers to help at events. And so sometimes people say, oh, well, uh, you know, I have skills in X, Y, and Z that I could give you two days a year. I could volunteer at your next event. I could donate some resources that I have that I never use. So it's really about finding that connection and making it work within your lifestyle because what we don't want is people to connect and feel guilty that they can't 
give more or they feel guilty that they're giving to one at the cost of another. That That's going to create more internal conflict as opposed to creating balance. So it's about finding the balance and finding what works within your lifestyle, what's realistic and what does it look like for you. Brilliant. I love that. It's, it goes back to what you said before about tapping into your curiosity too, that when people are searching for a passion, uh, I often say, you know, what, what are you curious about? So I love that link up there. Claire, before we wrap up, I've got a few general questions that I ask all my guests and this first one sort of goes with my intrigue about how people learn. So if you could spend time with any mentor of yours in the world, who would it be and how would you spend that time? What would you sort of talk to them about? And this doesn't have to be an existing mentor. It can be a previous one uh, or it can be a world influencer that you'd love to have as a personal mentor or spend some time with. If there was a person I could spend any time with one-to-one in particular, it would have to be Oprah. I'm a huge Oprah fan. I've been to a lot of her presentations and I've seen her, you know, do various events live and I just think she's a really incredible woman. But the thing I would ask her, the most important thing that I would want to know is what is your biggest failure? Because I think we're often very shy to talk about our failures and, you know, you look at Oprah, she just looks like a success. You wouldn't anticipate she's ever had a failure, but I guarantee you she has. And I think that's where your greatest learnings come from. So as I mature, I've definitely learned that I need to talk about my failures, to accept them, to embrace them and to use those learnings to move forward and also draw upon other people's wins and losses. And what has your biggest failure been? I think probably my biggest failure is, and I didn't actually realize this until I had a baby, is that I... um, I just give too much of myself to the role, which doesn't sound like a failure, but what happens is you, your boundaries start to break down, you start to lose a bit of balance. And I found this in my last role. So my last position was the first time I was a CEO. I worked there for five years and I was so incredibly motivated to create change. I was I worked with people that were incredibly disabled, incredibly disadvantaged. Parents were relinquishing care of their children and I just became so emotionally involved that I gave a little bit too much of myself and it just creates an unbalance in your life because what is truly important, which for me at the time was my family, actually took a back seat to my role, to my job because it became my life. I was so, I was just too absorbed in what I was doing, so dedicated to making a change for other people's life that it came at a cost to my own, which I actually didn't realize until I had a baby and I couldn't fit it all in. And so I had to really reevaluate what it was going to look like and why I found myself in that position. So balance is something that I work on every day, balance and my energy, my time, my focus. I have to remind myself every day about what's important and how I'm going to use my energy. And I think too, just that understanding that it's not necessarily spending 10 hours in the office doesn't mean you're doing a great job. But if I do six hours of incredibly focused, committed work without distraction and I'm productive, then often that's more important than the hours spent because productive hours and time spent are very 
different. And is that how you check your balance? You mentioned there about energy, time, focus, those hours of commitment uh, and productiveness. Is that you checking in on your balance and then obviously bringing in quality time with family? Do you look at other parts of your overall health and well-being when you talk about balance? Yeah, definitely. I'm not a big sleeper. My sleep Sleep is probably one of the big indicators for me. So on average, I only sleep about three hours a night. So wow. I need those. Hours, yeah, I need those three hours to be incredibly intense. I can't have disruption. I have to. I have to sleep for those three hours in order to function generally. But often in my last job, I, I wouldn't sleep at all, and I'd work through, and I'd find myself in in periods of internal chaos because I literally may not have slept for three or four days because I was on a big job or I was supporting a family in very intense crisis or, you know, I was going for a really big tender, which would, might impact hundreds, if not thousands of families in the community that I was serving. So that, that sense of purpose actually took over my own sense of personal care. So for me, I, I, I will actually talk to myself about that. What am I going to do today? I might write it down, but it's a, it's a very physical, very direct process that I have to go through. And it's because I'm learning. It's because it's not my natural position. My natural position is just work, 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 work. Um, but I know that that will take a toll eventually. And so I need to create balance. You're a machine. I, I'm uh, unbalanced if I don't get seven hours sleep, let alone three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, if one could go off, I would not wake in those three hours. But yes, I, I mean, I've always been like that. That's not a new thing. That's I remember being a very small child and only sleeping for very short periods of time, much to my parents' disgust. But that's, that's just me naturally. But if I... I had a number of periods where I did not sleep at all for days on end and it takes a real physical toll on me. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you only rely on three hours, where as humans, you definitely need that that sleep yeah. for the balance. Yeah. Claire, what specific advice can you give to the listeners on what action they can take to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? I think the simplest thing they can do is stop t- talking and start doing and that might be a big or small action, but some sort of action because I find today we're so PC and we're so distracted that we're just talking, 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 which is taking away from productivity, which is taking away from impact, which is taking away from actually feeling part of something and actually creating meaningful change. So you have to find what that looks like for you, but start doing do something. Brilliant. I'm all about action and that's why I asked that question. That's a very direct way to do it. I love it. Now, the two-part question here, where can we learn more about you and Project Futures, so the social media handles and website that you mentioned before, and then also how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? So, jumping on our website, which is projectfutures.com or following us on Instagram and at Project Futures or our Facebook page is really important. We put a lot of information about what we're doing, upcoming events, just issues and different stats around human trafficking, keeping people aware of the issue. And again, it's just about those bursts of information that's easy for people to digest over time. But I think if people want to support the cause is just to get in contact with us. Think about, can you come on a cycle? Well, would you like to buy a t-shirt? Can you buy the book and, and read a little bit more about someone's experience with sex trafficking? You know, there's lots of of ways to donate, whether that's uh, literally donating $5 as a once-off or five donating $5 a month. If everyone does that, I guarantee you it makes an impact. You know, when we talk about 
how do we create change? As little as $25 will buy a bicycle for a, a child in Cambodia. That bicycle is, is a means for her to get to school every day. It means she gets a meal every day at school. It means someone independent and safe is checking on her and, you know, making sure she gets to school and she's not being trafficked or she's not being abused. And so $25 most Australians could afford, but it it's a game changer for that little person in Cambodia. I love that. And Claire, one of my top core values is giving and I give all my guests a gift for coming on to the podcast. And just hearing you talk about that then, about how we can all make an impact, what I was going to give to you, I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to add to that too. I'm going to send you some of our charity teas that you can take with you to Cambodia to give to some of the young ones. We have our life teas range that are designed by some of the athletes and they choose a charity that's close to their heart and 100% of the profits go to their chosen charity. So I'm going to give a couple of those shirts to you, but I'm also now going to donate $50 as well because I think about a couple of people there that can get bikes uh, to, to help with their journey. So I'm going to do that for you as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. I highly recommend that everyone else uh, jumps on board and I'll link in the projectfutures.com and the app Project Futures so they can follow you online. Now, before we finally wrap up, Claire, do you have anything else you want to say to the listeners about life or anything at all or do you have anything you want to ask me? I really just want to say thank you for taking the time to learn a little bit about us. I think, you know, there's so many incredible charities and incredible people doing work, each of them warranted and and equally as as important. And often human trafficking, particularly sex trafficking, is something that's not very palatable for people and they don't want to spend time unpacking it or learning about it. So you using your platform is an incredible opportunity for us just to connect with new people and hopefully shed a little bit of light on an issue that's that's ugly, but there we're actually working towards ending. So I want to thank you. I really appreciate your time. It's the least I can do. Claire, you're a legend. You're pouring your heart and soul into a movement that is literally saving people's lives. Keep shining your generous, impactful light to the world. Thank you. You take care. Wow. It still baffles me to think about those numbers and that in this day and age, there's so much human trafficking and slavery still happening. Please follow Project Futures on social media at Project Futures and also check out their website projectfutures.com to find out more info about their cycle tours and how you can help combat these troubling realities. I made that $50 donation that I spoke about to the two bikes straight away and I've put that direct link in the show notes for this episode for anyone wanting to contribute in that way. It's not only the education that is powerful, it's also the ability for them to have transport to the education itself. Now, you heard Claire mention that she only requires about three hours of sleep per night. Just to clarify, she wasn't encouraging, and we're certainly not encouraging you, to get less sleep, to grind out and get more done. That's just how Claire's body clock operates. Maybe that'll be my limits when I have children. Oh, God. (laughs) Speaking of children, great example of the power of exposing them to charity work at a young age. Claire was eight. Look at the perception it gave her of the world. It doesn't mean we'd expect the kids to work in charities. It just helps create a different perspective and greater appreciation for how good we really have it. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please share it to anyone else you believe will get value from it. And let's help Claire and the Project Futures team make that all-important change. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.